Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. What is your big picture outside of real estate? Because when I was working at my job and I was really tired of it, what kept me going in sales was knowing that my big picture was that financial freedom. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Deals and money. We are constantly seeking deals and money as real estate investors, and I bet you're having a challenge right now, especially with deals, if you're like most real estate investors, because it's tough to find deals right now. But here's the thing. There's a competitive advantage out there that when implemented, it will help you accomplish your objective of getting more deals and or getting more investors. And that is having a great follow-up system. Having a great follow-up is one of the keys to success in real estate. And Follow-Up Boss is the leading CRM for real estate. This is the system you need in place so you can reach out to owners and brokers directly for deals, or you can follow up with your investors, and you do it all in one spot. The CRM makes it 10 times faster to call and text owners, then integrates those into a software so nothing slips through the cracks. The Follow-Up Boss conversion system and powerful management tools help align your methods and drive growth that otherwise it could have been missed and probably would have been missed. Go to followupboss.com forward slash best ever to get a system in place. And if you need help, they got you covered. Follow-Up Boss offers experts seven days a week. You can pick up the phone and speak to an actual human being anytime during business hours. Visit followupboss.com forward slash best ever to check out how much time you could save by streamlining your follow-up process. Best ever listeners, they're treating you extra special. You get an extended 30-day free trial, twice the length of the normal trial. For a limited time, go to followupboss.com forward slash best ever and perfect your follow-up. Mark your calendars for the Best Ever Conference February 24th through 26th back in person at the Gaylord Rockies Convention Center. Join the experienced community and phenomenal speakers for a weekend of learning the best commercial real estate strategies, building relationships, and quite frankly, having a lot of fun. As a bonus, once you purchase your ticket, you are put into a mini mastermind group to start making connections with other commercial real estate investors immediately. Get the lowest prices right now at besteverconference.com. That's besteverconference.com. Hello, best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Ash Patel, and I'm with today's guest, Kim Hopkins. Kim is joining us from Flagstaff, Arizona. She is a principal at Iron Peak Properties, and her portfolio consists of 
over 300,000 square feet of multi-tenant light industrial in multiple states. Kim is also an LP multifamily syndication investor. Kim, thank you for joining us. And how are you? I'm good. How are you doing, Ash? Wonderful. Kim, before we get started, can you tell the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Sure. So background is uh, not to go too far back, but we uh, weren't really interested in any other business products early on. Fashion ain't my passion, as I like to say, but I always knew I wanted to build a business. I actually got a PhD in mathematics at the beginning. And I'm very embarrassed to say that, by the way, because I know that Robert Kiyosaki would make fun of me and he's one of my idols. So I'm a recovering academic many, many years ago. And then we left academia, me and my husband, soon after graduating. And we went into the real business world. I was actually in tax credits. I got a job as a project manager in tax credits and ended up building the business and running half the company and then getting into sales. And in 2014, I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad and decided that I didn't want to have a job anymore. I wanted passive income and I wanted to build my own business. So we developed a five-year plan in 2014 that alternated buying properties and having kids. So two kids and four properties later, we retired from our day jobs at the end of 2018 on time and under budget. And that's where we are today. We own multi-tenant light industrial, a little over 340,000 square feet, like you mentioned, and we own it in Oregon, Washington, Utah, and Texas. Amazing. Kim, why multi-tenant light industrial? That's a great question. So multi-tenant, that's all the advantages of an apartment multifamily investment, because if you have a single tenant property and you use leverage, in other words, a loan, which we do, if you have a single tenant property and that tenant vacates, now you're underwater on your mortgage. So multi-tenant affords us the risk diversification of multiple tenants. Sometimes if one of our tenants leaves, we might not even know because they're backfilled a month later. It's faster to fill the smaller tenants, and it's less of a risk to your mortgage. And then the reason for the multi-tenant industrial is because we don't get phone calls in the middle of the night to fix a toilet, which we like. Our tenants are businesses, and they're very self-sufficient businesses, so they'll often fix things by themselves. And unlike office and retail, there's very little tenant improvement. So I don't need to do a lot of improvement to the space. I don't get a lot of phone calls on the space, and it's a very versatile space. We have CrossFit tenants. We have painters, contractors, all different types of businesses. So it's pretty good for recessions and things like unexpected pandemics. Kim, when you say multi-tenant light industrial, is that also flex space? That could be considered flex space as well. Yeah. We look for properties with very small office build out, only about 20% of the space. And some of our spaces have a little more office. So yes, that could be considered flex. A typical ceiling height in your properties would be? About 12 to 14 foot clear height. Some of them are as high as 18. Okay. And these are ideal for tenants like you mentioned. I've seen churches in some of them. Yes. Uh, people that tint car windows. Yes. Cars. <laughs> yeah. Yep. It's such we have a, all that. <laughs> it's such a versatile space. And one of the things I love about that is we've literally given people what looks like a dirty garage. And the next time you see it, it's an incredible space that they transformed on their own dime. You probably had a lot of experience with that. 
Yes, that's very true. Some of the tenants just keep it very simple and there's very minimal build out. But then we have larger tenants like 10,000 square foot tenants and they will do the build out themselves, which we love because we are not developers. We took a course in development and realized we would lose our shirts. So we don't do development. And then we'll give them some sort of rent abatement or amortization of the TI over the life of the lease. But we love when the tenants improve the space for us, which is another benefit. Do you typically have to give them a tenant improvement allowance or do they just do it on their own? It really varies. We tend to encourage them to do it on their own. So you uh, don't have to pay for it. So we don't have to pay for it and we'll just give you free rent and we'll just call that a day. And now we have a beautiful space that's improved for the next tenant and we didn't have to pay for it. So that's our preference, but we're flexible too. We sometimes pay for it as well. Kim, I'm going to guess you didn't set out to get into this space that it happened by accident. Yes, it did happen by accident. We kind of knew we didn't want to do multifamily because it's so competitive and, and now the cap rates are so compressed, but we wanted something similar to that product type. And we knew a real estate agent in Vancouver, Washington, where we started, and he had a property like this available in 2014 when we started. And at first we said, absolutely not. These are way too many tenants. We don't want to babysit. And he slowly talked us into it. We kind of lucked out with the timing. The owner was older in his 70s, and he was getting overwhelmed with the amount of tenants. And also, he was still recovering from 2008. So a lot of the leases, there was some vacancy, almost 30%. So we got it in contract with this high vacancy, but we really pushed the property manager and told him we would use him when we closed. And he actually filled most of the spaces by the time we closed. So it was a really good way to start off our investing career. And you got hooked on this asset class. I got very hooked on this asset class, yes. Are a lot of your rents triple net or are they gross leases? That's a great question. So sometimes the bigger tenants, we have a couple single tenant properties that are 10,000 square feet and those are triple net. They understand the concept of triple net and it's very simple. For the multi-tenant industrial, we actually find that gross leases are much better for those kinds of tenants because number one, it's easier for everyone to understand. No matter how many times you explain triple net to a tenant, at the end of the year, if you ask them to pay an extra amount in expenses because you have an overage, they're always upset and probably rarely grateful if you pay them 200 bucks instead. So we actually bought in 2019 a multi-tenant property from a very large syndicator, one of the largest syndicators in Australia. And one of his selling points was he had converted all of the tenants to triple net. When we talked to the tenants on site, guess what their number one complaint was? <laughs> the variable cost. Yes, they were very upset by that. So we promised them we'd do the exact opposite and we convert them all back to gross. And now everyone's happy and everyone's lives are simpler. Yeah, and just so the best ever listeners know, triple net typically would have the tenants paying for taxes, maintenance, insurance, things like parking lot resealing, exterior maintenance, roof replacements, they would all share in that cost. And when you have mom and pop tenants, they can't really absorb a variable cost. They budget, my rent is $1,500 a month. And if they get hit with a $1,000 bill, that's really hard on them. Yeah. And just to add on to that a little bit, you can add certain items back in as a variable cost, sometimes called modified gross. So for example, in Texas, where they have very high property taxes, which you can fight by the way, but they have very high property tax reassessments. We sometimes have a modified gross lease that says you don't owe anything extra unless the property tax shoots up, in which case we might pass your pro rata share on to you. And you don't have any of these properties in Arizona, do you? 
That's a funny story. So we actually tried to find a property in Phoenix, Arizona last year, and we were in contract, but that clear height you asked about earlier was misstated. They told us it was a 14 foot clear and we went and interviewed the top leasing broker in town, which is what we always do for our properties. And he said, that's my least favorite property in this market. And we said, why? And he said, the clear height, it's only 12 feet. And we said, no, it's not, it's 14. And we went back and measured and he was right. So we had to pull out of that property along with some other issues with what was stated in the offering memorandum. But the other issue too is we're really numbers driven investors. We're very, very careful about the numbers and the underwriting. And I made a mistake with Phoenix. I was so interested in getting into the Phoenix market that I let my standards lower for cash on cash returns. And it was just too slim of a margin. So we bought a property in Dallas instead, which made almost 3% more in cash on cash than the property we're looking at in Phoenix. A PhD in mathematics, I would assume you're very numbers oriented. Hey, you got to use your strengths. (laughs) What is clear height and why is that so important? The clear height is just the height from the ground to the shortest point of the top of the warehouse. And it's very important because a lot of these people are distributors and they have to fit their racks and their lifts and everything into the warehouse. So if it's too short, you're going to limit your amount of users and As I mentioned earlier, one of our favorite things about these properties is its versatility. So that property was really pigeonholing itself to more of an office user. And we try to stick away from people that are going to want too much office. Yeah. And there's certain milestones with clear height, like 14 foot. You can get an additional rack in there. The forklift can get higher. So that 12 to 14 foot difference may not seem like a lot, but it's huge in terms of the potential tenants you can attract. Yes. And as you know, when you underwrite a deal, there's always going to be errors and things that you discover along the way. And in the Phoenix property, the underwriting was in their favor. So the margins got even slimmer. Whereas in the Dallas property, we underwrote the margins actually ended up being in our favor. So that's the direction we want to go. (laughs) Kim, how do you find tenants for properties like this? We really believe in local property management. We've lived in Los Angeles for 10 years. We moved at the end of 2020 to Arizona And my investing motto was always ABC, anything but California. So we've always had properties out of state. And we've, since the beginning, believed in local property management. Our very first property manager for that Vancouver property was an older gentleman. And he basically told us, look, I know how to run this. I think of this as my property. And at first we were kind of offended and thought, oh, he doesn't respect us. But then we realized that that's exactly what we want. Property managers and leasing agents who think of it as their property and treat it as their own. So we really rely on local leasing agents to help us fill the properties. And they advertise through their websites, CoStar, LoopNet, sometimes Craigslist, the usual channels. Is it hard to find property managers experienced in flex space or light industrial? It is. It's pretty challenging. It's a unique space. And there's a lot of big companies in the market that will charge a large fee and they have these young guys on the job and nothing wrong with the young guys on the job, but they don't quite get the relationship aspect. And we're looking for the guys who are more seasoned. And when you go around the property and talk to them, everyone knows that guy's name and sometimes thinks they own it. So in the Texas property we bought last year, we hired the property manager that was already working on the space as the property manager and everyone knew him and it was just an obvious choice. 
So Kim, if you are in due diligence, is finding a property manager part of that process? And if you don't find a qualified PM, would you still close on that property? That's a great question. We have a pretty detailed underwriting process that we go through. And one of the main steps we go through in the due diligence process is to identify a property manager. And that was learned through trial and error of not doing that during the due diligence phase. So we will interview several property managers, and then we will even put a contract in place with the property manager prior to the end of due diligence that says that it will be effective upon closing. And that way, when you're negotiating, you want to negotiate a rate with them prior to closing, because after closing, everyone knows that now you are in need of a property manager. So that's how we handle that situation. Would you still close if there's no PM? No, we would not close if we cannot find a good property manager. Okay, so that's critical. You wouldn't try to self-manage for some period of time? I don't think so because we're very detailed in our search for a property manager. And so we can't find one during the due diligence process. I do not think one will appear afterwards, although I haven't encountered that yet. So I have to let you know. Kim, what would you tell people that are searching for multifamily or different asset classes and always bypass when they see a building like this? I might not necessarily criticize them for that. I really do believe in focusing on one area and focusing on your area of expertise. And I've learned the hard way that when you don't do that, you sometimes get into trouble. So I would encourage people to pick an asset class and master it. But I would say that if they're getting into it and looking for a new asset class that for the reasons of the risk diversification and the easier tenants, that it's a really good asset class to consider. And it's very competitive to find right now, though. I want to go back to finding tenants because the tenants for this type of space vary. And it could be somebody that has a painting company that they're running out of their garage or somebody that has an electric company that they're running at a different storefront. How do you solicit this huge variety of tenants? I think the space speaks for itself, but one thing we do in our space selection is very important. So we have a list of criteria. One of them is that no more than 20% of the space is built out. So no more than 20% office, because we find that if you have more office than that, it really narrows your tenant pool. You want only 20% office and then a tenant can add and subtract if they want but it's a much more versatile option. We only do single level properties, no two-story. That also opens it up. We're careful about the clear height. That's another thing. And the other thing is we look for properties that are on busy roads and have a lot of good street frontage. I always say they face the street the hamburger way instead of the hot dog way so that there's lots of signage. And so you get that retail crossover. So if you have an industrial building that's in the middle of nowhere, which happens a lot with a lot of Texas properties that are really far out from town, you're going to really limit your tenant base. So we look for places that have that retail crossover. So it could be a CrossFit. It could be a driving school. It's close to a variety of commercial retail properties so that sometimes we get storage from big retail businesses. And then the last thing is we look for properties where no more than 30% of the space is occupied by a single tenant so that we have these small units that turn over quickly. And just as an aside, I kind of learned a rule of thumb that it takes about a month per square foot of space to lease. 
So a thousand square foot unit takes me about a month to lease, whereas a 10,000 square foot unit can take 10 months to a year. And Kim, some of your tenants will have customers coming into their shop. Others will just have vans where employees show up and they leave in the morning, come back at night. What are your parking requirements for customer parking on these properties? That's a great question too. So we do look for ample parking, at least a three to one ratio, three to thousand to accommodate that because we do want that retail crossover. So we look for enough parking for that retail purpose. We'll get back to the show with the first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Let me ask you a question. Do you want to start your own syndication business or maybe you've tried, but you've been unable to get your first apartment deal? Well, it's hard. I know firsthand getting started in syndication is not easy. So have you considered working with a mentor? Imagine working one-on-one with a full-time syndicator who can help you do your first apartment building deal faster, help you avoid big mistakes and scale your portfolio. If you feel like I'm speaking to you right now, then I want you to check out the mentoring program from my friend Michael Blanc who specializes in helping people get started with apartment buildings. I've known Michael for many years now and he genuinely wants to help people become financially free. He developed a proven system and has helped hundreds of people do their first apartment building deal. I know he can help you as well. To find out more, text the word Joe, J-O-E, to 66866. I know Michael's going to take care of you. Go ahead and text the word Joe, J-O-E to 66866. Do it right now while it's fresh on your mind and let's get you started with your own apartment syndication business. I'd like to introduce you to my good friends over at PassiveInvesting.com, a private equity real estate firm based out of the Carolinas. PassiveInvesting.com makes it easy for you to start investing in real estate. They focus on acquiring institutional quality apartments and self-storage facilities with private accredited investor funds. They also have a real estate debt fund that offers hard money loans to local fix and flippers across the U.S., which currently has a 0% default rate. With a portfolio of over $700 million in assets and controlling over $250 million in equity, they know how to secure the best deals and how to avoid the red flags. If you are interested in learning more, please reach out directly to PassiveInvesting.com and request the free Passive Invest- investor guide that outlines the seven red flags for passive apartment and self-storage investing. Visit PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags to download that PDF now. That's PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags. Have you built any of these buildings or do you just acquire existing properties? We've just acquired them. We found that it's not cost effective even to build them right now. And it certainly wouldn't be cost effective for us. Like the people who are building these properties are building it themselves. They are the GC on the property. Otherwise, they're just too expensive to build with the build out. Why is that? It seems like block walls, metal roof. Why is that expensive to build? I think it's the build out into the multi-tenant factor. So I think if you're building a single tenant property, then it probably makes sense right now. But for the multi-tenant, you need the plumbing equipped so that every tenant has a bathroom, every tenant has an office. In fact, I was looking at a property way out in the middle of nowhere in Texas the other day that someone had just built, and it looked like he might have ran out of money because it was one of these properties, except there was one problem. The units didn't have bathrooms. He had built one standalone bathroom in the middle of the parking lot. So I have a feeling that it's the plumbing (laughs) and the offices that adds to the build-out and makes it not cost-effective. And how about sprinklers and floor drains? Yeah, we look for properties that are sprinklered, but it's not necessarily a requirement. 
and then drains in the floor? Yes, they have those as well. Is that a requirement for you? All right, so we talked about all the positives about flex space or light industrial. What are some of the negatives? Let's see. It is a high-maintenance asset. So it is true that if you have a single-tenant, triple-net lease, it is very low-maintenance. The tenants will fix everything themselves. They sometimes actually pay the triple. They actually pay the property tax on some of our properties themselves. So that is a low-maintenance asset. We have a lot of tenants. We have a lot of financials. We have a lot of leasing turnover. So it is a high maintenance product. And that's why we're constantly improving our systems to try to operate it as efficiently as possible. So that's one downside. The other downside is it's actually, believe it or not, a very high demand product right now. So they are extremely hard to find. They're hard to find and they're very overpriced. So back to my Phoenix example, one of the problems in Phoenix right now, one of the biggest real estate offices in Phoenix has set up a partnership with their sister office in Southern California, whose sole purpose is to take California investor money and invest it in properties in Phoenix. And it's a running joke now that you see a property for sale and you say to the broker, hey, is this a California price? And they're like, yep. So the prices have inflated so much because of that demand. So that's the other problem is they're very hard to find. So how do you find them? Well, we started out with a relationship with someone we knew, and then we found a couple of them just on LoopNet, actually. This last property, we finally did what I've wanted to do for years, which is it was a pocket listing, I guess, from one of our current property managers, and he brought us the property, and he said, I think it's going to go on the market. I'm the one listing it, and we said, what do we have to do to keep this off of the market? We dropped everything we were doing and put together an offer right away and got it taken off the market. So a few different ways. What else do you do to find properties? Honestly, I've tried before to do direct to owner. It was just too much of a task for me because it's just too difficult to identify the properties to begin with. The, The data online is just not accurate enough. So we have a list of brokers we call upon. And we use LoopNet and then our relationships with our existing property managers. That's basically it. I would start looking at residential listings that list flex space buildings like this. So a lot of residential websites will have a search function for commercial properties. And is there a minimum square footage that you would have to buy? For a minimum of about 30,000 square feet. Okay. So that might be a bit large. I've seen a lot of these. 10,000, 15,000 square foot properties listed by residential realtors. I will look into that. And they don't list them on LoopNet or Crexy. This is a very good idea. I will definitely look into that. And that kind of brings me to like one of the things I look for, which is I look for problems that go away with the seller. So one of those problems could be the agent. So if a residential listing agent is listing an industrial property, that's a perfect example of that. Problems that will go away with the seller. Yeah, we've bought a few and some of my best commercial deals have been listed by residential realtors. And when I say commercial, I mean non-residential commercial. It's like retail, strip centers, office. That's very interesting. I will definitely try that. It's a great way to find deals. So what happens if you can't find more deals? How are you going to pivot? Well, not to answer your question with a question, but what's on my mind right now is kind of what is our next five-year goal? Do we want more deals? How many? The five-year goal we had in 2014 of financial freedom 
was very clear and very motivational. And now that we've achieved it, my next question is, what do we do next? How many more properties do we want next? I feel like first I have to answer that question. And then once I'm hungry and know what I'm shooting for, then I'm going to go about trying to find new deals. Do you take on investors for your deals? We have taken on some investors. It's mostly friends and family, to be honest with you, on investors versus no investors. I think that if you run out of cash, investors is an obvious way to go. And your cash on cash is certainly higher with investors, but you also have a lot of freedom from just doing the deals yourself. What are your thoughts on that? Exact same as yours. I never (laughs) really wanted to take on investors. I have taken on investors for two reasons. One, people that have let me invest in their deals, I've brought them into some of my deals. And then others, I've got a lot of high net worth friends that just make horrible investment decisions. They invest in bars and restaurants and marijuana companies and anything that's sexy and that gives them bragging rights, but they don't make any money. So I've encouraged them to invest in some of my deals to show them that there's some tax benefits to real estate. You actually grow your money and not wait for, oh, you know, we're going to sell this in 10 years and we'll make millions of dollars or a bar or restaurant that's going to fluctuate or get impacted by COVID. But I think in the long run to scale, you have to come up with a solution. Investor capital is great, but like you said, if there's a need there, if you're out of capital, yeah, and, and you have good deals, It's an option, but yeah, I'm kind of mixed on it. Yeah. The other thing too, is we like to hold our properties forever. So that's another issue that we think about as well. Why is that? So if you purchase a property that's 50% vacant and you fill it, you've now added a tremendous amount of value to it. Why not sell it? Well, because that's not how we operate. We are cash flow long-term investors. And if you lease it up, now you have that recurring cash flow forever. There is an example of a deal we actually lost money on that we did end up selling. But if the property is working well, you can always refinance to recoup some of that. But we're looking for properties that will cash flow continuously for the long term. And do you typically do a cash out refi if you improve Um, the value of the property? Yeah, we did refi a couple properties last year because the interest rates were so good. But we actually didn't take much cash out. So again, we chose to focus on optimizing our cash flow. So we just reduced our liability and increased our cash flow by quite a bit each year on those properties. And we chose that option instead of pulling all our cash out because it sounds really sexy to pull your cash out of the deal and it might work. It does work for a lot of investors. But for us, that just increases our mortgage responsibility and that decreases our cash flow. So from a risk perspective, if there is a recession, we don't want this super high mortgage payment. We would rather have this increased cash flow as a risk reduction strategy. Kim, how do lenders feel about this type of asset? (laughs) It depends on the lender, but some lenders don't quite get it. So we have taken this asset before to some lenders who specialize in multifamily. And we've explained to them, this is just like multifamily, but instead of Joe Schmo renting it personally, we have an LLC here, we have a business. And we actually like the one-year leases because 
it's good for us. It's less of a real estate commission. They turn quickly and the lender will turn to us and say, you have one year leases or even worse than one year lease. When we're buying a property, if we see a lot of month to month leases, that's great. There will be month to month tenants whose leases expired 10 years ago and they're still in the space. That is a very secure tenant to us. And we're going to go in and turn them into a year-long lease, but the lender does not see it that way. So it definitely has been a struggle trying to find lenders that understand. We started out with local credit unions who could develop a relationship with us and understood and got it. And now we've kind of transitioned to the life insurance lending space. And that's been really fantastic because we long-term hold, we're able to get 15-year money which is incredible on commercial assets like this. Usually it's around seven years. When you say 15 years, is that 15 years locked on the interest rate? 15 year term and 15 year locked with a 25 to 30 year amortization. Okay, got it. And what percentage do you put down? We started out putting down 25%. Now we're a little bit closer to 30, just the way the market's going. I would find local lenders not credit unions, local lenders near each property yeah, and see if they'll finance it. I would try to get 20% down. Well, we've tried that. We tried that on this last Texas deal. It just depends. Their terms were not nearly as good as the life insurance company. The life insurance company had lower rates and a longer term. The longest term we could find with the local guys was seven years and that was a stretch for them. But I think it depends on the market and just the lender you're working with. Got it. Kim, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? My best real estate investing advice ever. I would say to start with the big picture and really know what you're aiming for. So I hear a lot of people talking about all that they're going to buy and the money they're going to make, but I want to know your big picture. What's your goal? Is it to quit your job? Is it financial freedom? Do you want to spend more time with your family? What is your big picture outside of real estate? Because when I was working at my job and I was really tired of it, what kept me going in sales was knowing that my big picture was that financial freedom. So I would start with that. Before you climb the ladder, make sure it's leaning against the right building. Kim, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? I think so. All right, Kim, what's the best ever book you recently read? Let's see, I actually read two. The first one is The 12-Week Year by Brian Moran and Michael Lennington. And that was a really interesting book. Basically, the point of that book is at the beginning of the year, I always plan out my goal for the year and my my various goals for real estate. And the premise of this book was, hey, instead of planning that for a year, plan it for 12 weeks instead of 12 months and stay on top of it every single week to make sure to achieve those 12-week goals. And I know it sounds really simple, but that's been really helpful for me. So I basically condensed my goals for the year into 12 weeks. So I've been a little busy this January. And then the second book, which really ties in well with the first, is a book called Who Not How by Dan Sullivan. And that's been really important to me because if you're trying to accomplish a year's worth of goals in 12 weeks, you better figure out how to delegate. And that's something I've really struggled with in my career is learning how to delegate and outsource. So that book's been very helpful to me as well. Kim, what's the best ever way you like to give back? The best ever way I like to give back is I love helping people get into real estate. (laughs) So like I said earlier, we're a big picture, but also an analytical team. So we really like to help people start with that big picture, their purpose. And then we like to help them drive from the numbers. So I find a lot of times 
Like you said, your friends, they want to invest in real estate, the restaurant, something sexy. And I like to start with the numbers and say, okay, here's where you want to go. Here's the numbers you need to get to hit this. And here's the size deal you need to do. And here's the return on that deal. And really work on the numbers. But I'm interested in discussing real estate at every level with every kind of person, whether they know a lot more than me or they're just starting out. And I think helping someone find their path to financial freedom is the best way I can give back. Kim, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you? They can reach out to us. Our website is ironpeakproperties.com and they can send emails to me at info at ironpeakproperties.com. Kim, thank you so much for your time today, sharing your story having a PhD in mathematics, and in 2014, coming up with a five-year plan, hitting it early, and sharing this incredible asset class with us and all the tips and tricks. So thank you again. Thanks so much, Ash. I really appreciate you having me on the show. Best ever listeners, thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review. Share the podcast with someone who you think can benefit from it. Please also follow and subscribe and have a best ever day.